Miracy. In the early days, the biggest mistake that I probably made was hiring brilliant jerks. They were incredibly good at the skill set, but incredibly toxic to the people that they ended up working with. And the understanding that I didn't get right at that point in time was the work is the quality of the product, you know, and there can be no brilliant jerks on the team because that is a big detractor on going far together versus going fast alone. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this is To Lead is Human. For more than 30 years, I've run a business called Leading Large. I help C-level executives increase their impact. After we work together, they're able to better clarify priorities, energize their organizations, and build cultures of accountability and respect. In this podcast, we help you see how you can supercharge your leadership by introducing you to real-life executives who lead with intention. These top business leaders exemplify the principles of leading large. They know that as leaders, the power of their position comes with an equal measure of responsibility. These leaders run successful organizations, delivering genuine value to their customers, clients, and stakeholders, while they also prioritize building organizations that provide purpose, meaning, and a healthy environment for employees. We have the opportunity to learn from the challenges and successes they've experienced on their human journey. My guest on the show today is Dev Basu. Dev is the founder and CEO of Powered by Search, a digital marketing agency for B2B SaaS companies that's business to business, software as a service companies. His company drives predictable growth for their clients, which helps them to scale geometrically. Dev founded Power by Search during his last year in university, and within two years, the company was already boasting seven-figure sales. Within another five years, Dev had merged with two other companies, taking Power by Search to the next level and more than doubling the size of the business. As you listen to our conversation, pay attention to how intentionally Dev integrates his values into every aspect of the work he's doing. This intentionality is further reflected in the specific practices he will describe about how they act in the company to be sure that that intentionality is carried through in everything from how they serve clients to how they start meetings. Welcome to the show, Dev. I'm looking forward to talking through the challenges you've faced and insights you've developed along your leadership journey. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to Jen. Great. So, Dev, why don't you start us off with a brief overview of the company as it looks today and maybe what it's like for the people who work there? Yeah. Well, we are remotely distributed all over the world. We've got people in eight or nine different countries speaking multiple different languages. And we've done this since before the pandemic, actually. That wasn't always the genesis of the company, but it's probably the most resembling a management consulting company in the way that we're structured. So we typically people think digital marketing Often clients think of it as a slick account management function, and then these back-of-the-house people who you never get to talk to who are the ones who are doing the work, the production, so to speak. And we decided to buck that trend and say, what if we just put the talent front and center, working with clients hand-in-hand, hand, not from you know the other side of the table, but from the same side of the table, really. And so we've got a group of people who are consultants who build the work, design it, scope it, deliver it, and iterate on it directly with clients. All of our clients are B2B software or technology clients. They range from 
public technology companies to well-funded as well as bootstrap startups as well. And they come to us for help growing their businesses. And often the problem we're solving for with them is sometimes their product is better engineered, frankly, than their marketing really is. And we solve that gap using some of the playbooks that we've developed for over a decade now. That's so interesting. Thank you so much. So let's talk a little bit about you going from employee to CEO in less than a year. So that's a big jump. And also you did it in your early 20s, right? When you were at college. So how did this happen? Yeah, it's an interesting story, actually. It starts off with my manager at that point in time dissuading me from starting a business. And the three reasons to not start a business at that point in time were, Dev, you're going to be a terrible manager, number one. So she led with that, actually. And then the second was, it's really costly to run a business. You wouldn't imagine how much fax machines cost. And I went, I'm 20. I'm young, but I'm not dumb. And certainly much wiser now than I was because I had the wisdom of scars over time running the business. But those were the three things that I heard from my manager at that point in time. Wait, terrible manager. It's really expensive. Fax machines. Oh, and fax machines. Fax machines cost a lot. Now, I hadn't, I think she lost me on the third point because I hadn't used a fax machine in some time, this being sort of early 2009, you know, and the great financial crisis was just starting to subside a little bit. And I think that I had some of the tailwinds from that experience. And I was working full time in this job and doing full time university. And so when one of those things ended, which is the university bit, I just went, I have all this time on my hands. I had no idea that doing two of those things at the same time was out of the ordinary. And so that kind of led to the genesis of why not start this business? I'd already started working in this space. I was speaking at conferences. I was publishing you know, thought experiments on marketing on a blog. That led to some consulting work and whatnot. And so why don't I just make this something that is what I spent all of my time on instead of some of my time, especially now that university is done. And so it was really more of just a an experiment to see, you know, let me try this for six months, maybe a year. And I somewhat fell into it. And then the rest, as they say, is history. It started off from a one-person business to quite very quickly two and then four, and then it grew basically from over there. That's really something. So what kinds of experiences had you had previously in leadership or entrepreneurship that prepared you to take the helm of a company? Well... I think that, first of all, I didn't even think about it being a company. That very much happened by happenstance back then. But prior to that, I had a couple of different roles that led to building the experience. So when I was 17, I was working at Microsoft as a co-op student. And the boss who had hired me quit on me within the first week. And they didn't have a replacement for him for about 10 more months. He continues to be a friend and a mentor to date. And I got to basically do parts of his role. And had a lot of fun being in conversations in rooms that I probably did not, you know, earn the right to really be in. But I was given the the latitude to learn from leaders and from folks who were, you know, a couple of levels senior to me in those roles. I also didn't know what not to ask as well. And so seeing that I was being paid, you know, a low dollar amount as a co-op student at that point in time, I had the chutzpah to go over to the CEO of Microsoft Canada at that point in time and say, hey, so I'm basically doing all this work that, you know, you would have my boss doing instead and you haven't found a replacement. Can I ask you to sit down with me for a couple of lunchtime chats and sessions? And he said yes. And so I've had the benefit of many great mentors over the years similar to this. And 
I was listening to either Tony Robbins or Zig Ziglar, and I very quickly learned that phrase of, you know, you can get everything in life you want if you just give enough other people what they want. That was one of the core building blocks of what I learned in leadership for the many years that have passed since then. That's a great way to sum that up. So how would you describe right now your basic view or your principles or beliefs about what's a great leader? I think that a great leader is somebody who provides extreme clarity and, you know, is somebody who takes away confusion and puts in good guardrails as well as to what the expectations, the quality level, and also what the deadlines look like as well. And I don't just mean that from a management perspective. One of the things I figured out from people coaching me and from mentors as well is a leader is somebody who believes in you and your potential more than you do yourself and then provides you the clarity on the right next step as to what you should be doing at that point in time. So providing some clarity, having a lot of belief in the others, maybe more than they have in themselves. That's certainly true when people are on the younger end of the spectrum. They don't yet know all the things they can do. Anything else that's kind of core to your leadership? Yeah, I know I'm not a, a micromanager by any means. And so I learned over the years the difference between having a healthy level of distance and abdicating responsibility overall. But you have to be careful about the other end of it as well, which is not abdicating responsibility entirely. So really like diving into the three sort of criteria of autonomy, mastery, and purpose, like Daniel Pink's work, that's been a core trifecta for me from a leadership perspective to go, how do you balance those things with your teams, for example, and provide them vision is where we are going together, giving them the autonomy to be able to get there in the way that they feel is best, giving them an opportunity to develop mastery, and then coming back to core values, often repeating those so that the purpose remains really, really clear and it kind of aligns individually with the team and with the company basically as well. So how do you define the values in the company today? They're the types of things that you don't just put on the wall. They really are the elements that you hire, fire, and promote on. So rather than saying, you know, good job, we'll say, hey, thank you for being always in it to win it, right? Or I notice you being obsessed with serving others. Thanks for that. Keep that up. I feel like when it comes to core values, it's a little bit like parenting. There's a few rules that you just repeat often. And <laughs> you, know, you need to be reminded more than you need to be taught with something like that. And so I got in it to win it and obsessed with serving others. We don't always win. So the third one is when we fail, we don't lose the lesson. Yeah. So the fourth one is give a shit. Let's talk about what that one means. So it's not something you could ever fake. Right. If you're thinking about whether you care or not, that has to be something that's intrinsic. And I think in this case, when we're thinking about caring overall, are you caring about the standard of your own work, how you show up? Are you caring about how you are having the back of a team member or coworker? And do you care about the success of your clients overall? That's kind of why we say the core values are not optional at the end of the day. You have to kind of live them all of the time. And we get it right when we hire people who have effectively the same personal core values and we just tend to overlap, if you will. Uh, they're very hard to teach. They, you know, it's, you kind of come batteries loaded with them or not at the end of the day. And giving a shit is one of those things where it is very much an intrinsic drive to care. So did we get all the core values? We got four, but I thought there might be more. The last one is practice a growth mindset. That's a big element of, you know, the industry that we work in is always changing. 
I think the role of what a marketer, especially a digital marketer, has been responsible for has only expanded over the last decade. Now you need to be an expert in everything from analytics to you know consumer psychology to being able to work on ad platforms and no content. A very simple telltale sign of this is when we start looking at job descriptions and all of the bullet points for competencies, they've only expanded over time. And so you really do need to be the sort of Swiss army knife, if you will, in terms of your T-shaped skill set. That's great. So would you say that those core values came out of your own belief set or how did they emerge? They certainly did, I think, emerge from a lot of my own beliefs and practices. I think the early stages of entrepreneurship are often about duplicating or adding capacity to what one is good at. And about five years in is when I shifted to hiring complementary skill sets, but the same core values at the end of the day. That's great. So it sounds like you were pretty tuned into that even at the beginning. Yeah. And I think I have an old file that I you know, started as a way of maybe codifying or noting this type of stuff down. When it comes to something in a, like practicing a growth mindset, I really thrive on learning and always developing new skill sets or upgrading skill sets that I have right now. I was, you know, always be in it to win it. The be obsessed with serving others came from servant leadership. And specifically, one of the things we did with our org chart in the early days was we flipped it. So there was, it wasn't, you know, me as a CEO at the top, it was me at the bottom. And then we had you know, our executive team and the individual contributors were at the top, which always made sense to me because I'm like, these are the frontline people. They know how to solve problems way better than I do because I just don't have that same level of connection on a day-to-day basis with the client work that we end up doing. I think give a shit came from feedback. I was starting to ask peers and clients about how they felt about our work and how we were doing it. This kept coming up like, you guys really give a shit. It, it was literally something that came up in a lot of surveys and interviews we're like well that's what people think we do let's just call it what it is and then finally the one about you know when we fail don't lose a lesson in my bullet points in the notebook it said you either win or you learn and so that's what it originally started out as before it became when we fail don't lose a lesson that's really cool i really appreciate the reflection that you've offered on how long you were thinking about these and how much part of you they were before the company grew. And I guess one question is, how do you choose people? You know, one of the hardest things in entrepreneurial leadership is hiring. And especially when you're not well known, or you don't have a ton of resource, you're looking for the best people. How do you get the people that are the right fit? That's a great question. And a lot of my answer is actually influenced by a movie I watch called Moneyball. That is a great movie. I tend to rewatch it, you know, every year if I get a chance to. And the story, for those of you who are listening who haven't watched it, is it's about the Oakland A's and how a coach is being brought in to take an ailing team, turn it around. They don't really have the money to go, you know, make the big trades. And so the coach is faced with the decision of how do I get this team to be the top performing team when I don't have the resources? And certainly we, you know, I would say between... 2018 and onwards to where you know, our biggest years of growth have really been since then, we were being outcompeted for talent by tech companies who wanted to hire in-house in, in terms of their own marketers as well. And we had a co-located office at this point in time in Toronto. So, you know, the paradigm was hire people who are willing to work in the office. And I just scratched my head. We had a beautiful office, brick and beam, which was, you know, half full at any given time because 
the reason for that was people were moving out of the city and starting to have their own families and whatnot, and they didn't want to commute two hours a day into the office, which I was completely fine with because we were always managing based off outcomes anyways, rather than time kind of in the office and that type of thing. And so there was a point where I just said, well, is it really a good idea to assume that the best possible talent is an hour away from wherever our physical office really is? And I don't know why I believed that for so long. And so in early 2019 is when we started, you know, really opening up the doors to great talent from anywhere, frankly, in the world. And we just found this treasure trove of amazing people who were all around the world. We started hiring in the rest of Canada and the States and Brazil, in Europe, in Asia Pacific, for example, as well. And they were just great people. And, you know, building a remote culture is tough. It was often seen as the redheaded stepchild of companies being formed. The second was we didn't want an in-office culture and a remote culture. There was no second-class citizens, basically, even pre-pandemic. And so one of the weirder aspects of that is we have you know team members who are still an hour or two away who we don't meet with in person, even though we can, simply to avoid the sidebar conversations or the culture that may happen in person so that the team members who we don't meet in person as often, for example, maybe at a company retreat that we have, they don't feel like there's two cultures. There's just one culture where everybody communicates in the same way and we show up and we have the same rituals and practices. And what are some of those rituals and practices that you think help perpetuate or grow the culture of this essentially remote workforce? One of the things I think that's important is really a culture that celebrates managing and performance based off outcomes as opposed to inputs or outputs. So it's not about how long you work. It's not even about when you work, frankly. The work product is something that everybody can see. It's not behind closed doors. And that really creates an environment where what you produce really is your productivity at the end of the day. The second thing that's a bit different is because of asynchronous communication, a lot of what you would typically cover in meetings, we don't cover. So for example, a meeting isn't to review information that could have been an email or could have been a memo or an update or could have been a Loom video, for example. The point of a meeting is to get together and make a decision together about doing something you know, that needs to be decided, frankly, or that cannot be decided asynchronously. And so that comes as a very unique thing to new people joining Powered by Search. It's a refreshing thing for clients who can read faster than we can talk, frankly, when we're in a meeting. And it gets down to the brass tacks very quickly. And so that's an element of how we communicate. And then in terms of team building, one of the elements that is, you know, that we flipped on its head is rather than spending 45 minutes going through a scorecard or looking at an update or looking at company performance, things that we could typically do in an async type of setting, we said, well, what could we do that gets everybody excited about the work that each other is doing, which is why we often start these meetings with brags, which is very, it's not my wins. I'm not talking about taking accolades for myself. I will enter this particular conversation with an intentional interaction about something that I want to do to brag on a coworker. And so it usually is very much a, hey, earlier this week when I was working with Pedro, who happens to be one of our consultants in Brazil, he was working with a client in Amsterdam and this happened and I was blown away, right? And so immediately what you end up seeing, I mean, this is a little capsule of what that Zoom experience looks like. You see like little heart emojis going around, people thumbing it up and liking it. It builds a ritual exactly like that, right? 
we're wiggling our fingers to each other. You can't see us, but that's like the Zoom shorthand for I'm with you. Totally. I'm with you. I'm clapping for you. This is fantastic. And then it builds up momentum and it builds up energy because it's often easier, especially one of the things I've noticed about remote work in general is that it tends to attract more introverted people as opposed to extroverts sometimes. And this gives you a safe platform because it's often easier to reflect on what you appreciate about someone else than about yourself. We tend to often be very self-critical about everything that we could have done better and all the magnify all the things that we didn't do right. But when you're doing it for somebody else, it's much harder, actually, especially if you like and respect and admire the person to start off with critical feedback, because you can always find the good in what they do. And so as we go around the circle now, by the end of it, everybody's feeling wonderful about the week that they've basically had. And we're firmly living in kind of this idea of here's all the things that were cool that we achieved together. Now we get to talk about the work that we get to do next week or next month or next quarter. Yeah, you've actually already emphasized two of the three things that I tell clients that leaders always need to do. The first is provide clarity, which you did. And that's about making sure that the direction is clear. Not everybody feels like a visionary, but everybody can be clear about direction. And that allows all different kinds of people to be in the leadership role. And the second thing is to pay attention to the energy level in the business, keeping people engaged and inspired to go to that place we said. So the third thing you haven't talked about, I'll tell you what I say and tell me if it's relevant. It's to, I sometimes call it because my British friends like this, enable brilliant execution. Brilliant execution. It's very British. But that's what I say. And it's another way to say it is remove the barriers out of people's way or simplify delivery or whatever it is about the work processes. So do you have a comparable way that you think about that third bucket? We do. So the way that we do it is every time somebody starts a meeting, we have the stakeholders kind of go first and they share. And if there's somebody on our executive leadership team, or maybe if I'm present, for example, the rule is the most senior person has to speak last. They cannot jump in and take control of the meeting or say whatever they want to say. And the first thing they have to say is a question rather than a statement. And so after they hear everything, they have to ask a clarifying question about something. So usually, you know, if somebody says, this is blocked or that isn't happening or this is delayed, a leader might ask like, what do you think the real challenge is over here? And that allows a little expansion on whatever the telltale symptom basically is. We get a little bit closer to the root cause. And then usually it's, have we considered doing A, B, or C? And usually the person on the other side goes, you know what, that's a great idea. I didn't thought about that. Or, you know, actually we tried that and it didn't work. And it just creates a wonderful dialogue back and forth. And it's certainly in the way that we coach and lead the executive teams or managers, leaders, it's always about figuring out what the choke point is. We use that word instead and say, what's the choke point that's prevented? Where are the things blocked up over here? Sometimes call it the bottleneck. Exactly, right? And what I'm fond of always saying is that you're always like one conversation, one email, or one call away from being able to solve the bottleneck, typically. That's great. And how large is, how many employees now? We've got 30 folks on the team. So you've grown from five to 30. I have to imagine that your leadership approach has changed somewhat over the different stages of the company. So if you can remember back to like the real startup, like, do we have a product that anyone will buy? What was your leadership like then? And then once you got that product market fit, how do you think it shifted? In the early days, the biggest 
mistake that I probably made was hiring brilliant jerks. They were incredibly good at the skill set, but incredibly toxic to, you know, the people that they ended up working with. And the understanding that I didn't get right at that point in time was the work is the quality of the product and you need to hire people who have a certain skill set and they then transform that skill set into work output that the client buys and so on. And that's, I think, being a fundamental shift, which is, you know, there can be no brilliant jerks basically on the team because that is a big detractor on going far together versus going fast alone. And I think one of the things I've realized about this business is I've been around long enough to hear a, a headline every year about X is dead. So, you know, we do search engine optimization or SEO. SEO is dead, long live SEO. And the same thing has been said for everything. Content is dead. You know, AI will get you, it will rid you of your job and the media will do anything to sensationalize these types of things. And so what I've really fundamentally now I believe is the longer you are in the game, the longer you can stay in the game. And to stay in the game long enough, you need to work with people who are like-minded, who have similar core values, who are always working on those core values to make you know a better version of themselves this year than they were last year. And so the policy of no brilliant jerks on the team has really helped with that by, again, hiring, firing, and promoting based off core values. And I think that's one of the reasons we don't have any on our team really right now. That's really great. So one of the things that our listeners really value is hearing candid stories about some of the challenges that our guests have faced. And so maybe to that end, what are one or two of your defining moments, would you say, a challenge or piece of feedback or vulnerability that really changed the way you see yourself as a leader and the way you act as a leader? It's a great question. So I think I'll talk about two. One is maybe a recency bias of just what the last 12 months have been like. So because we work with B2B sort of software and technology companies, the market has been brutal over the last 12 months. And the reason for that, I mean, certainly we're at a point in time, you know, recording this in September of 2023, where rates have been higher than they have been in 40 plus years. The economy is slowing down and we work in a specific sector, which kind of blew up in 2020 and 2021 when the capital was easy and free and you had these incredible valuations and it felt like it would never stop, but it did. And now we're in a market where we have relationships with our clients where they're having layoffs and reductions in force and it's creating pressure. It's creating tension. Yeah, They have capital issues and things like that. And we're downstream of that as somebody in the ecosystem that helps them grow. Yeah, And so- the message that we have largely been sharing with a lot of you know our team is it's not enough to just share the work, even if it is good work. Remember that there's a person that you're actually delivering that work to. And we are a small portion of their day. That meeting, they have so much more on their shoulders and their plate. So I think we've really, you know, leaned into deep listening to create a little bit of space and leading with empathy, understanding that if we have more tension that we're on the receiving end of, that it's not always about us basically as well. And it really helps to be able to ask how the person is doing behind their agenda for whatever the work is or the content matter is. And largely that stemmed from, I was vulnerable going like, look, like it is crappy out there right now. And we are having peers having layoffs. So other digital marketing consulting and agencies have all had both reductions in force, but their revenues are being hit basically as well. And 
we run our business in a pretty fiscally sound kind of fashion. I come from an upbringing where the word debt is a dirty word, it's taboo. And so, you know, really from a perspective of running a fiscally sound business where we have good cushion from a cash perspective, I just laid it out with our people and said, look, we're not looking at reductions in force or layoffs or anything like that because our people are our biggest asset. It took us so much time to find each and every one of you. As long as you're having a good time over here, you're learning loads, this is going to be a difficult period, but we're going to get through it together. And then these are the behaviors that we need to exhibit to our clients about openness, about understanding, about listening. They may not have sometimes the capital to be able to work in this particular moment, but we have relationship capital instead. And so let's develop that basically over time. That's one. And then I think as an entrepreneur, you always have this, or I would say I at least always have this idea of like, I see problems everywhere. And then I very quickly will get to fixes or solutions. And so it's problem, solution, problem, solution. And then, you know, if you could put that into a product, that's fantastic. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with that until you realize that people are a part of the mix as well. And people don't have a desire to be fixed. And so going back into past relationships and things like that, I'd always think about if I saw a problem, hmm, I might as well jump into solution seeking mode immediately. And the one skill that has, I think I've been developing over the years is more deep listening and just realizing that sometimes you just need to be there as a leader, as a friend, as a partner, simply to listen. And it's actually kind of freeing because for somebody who is a recovering problem solver of all the things, including people, it's actually quite relieving to be able to go, ah, I didn't actually have to solve the problem. All I had to do was be there for the person and give them the space to talk it out. And they felt better just as a result of that, basically. And they sometimes come up with their own best answers while you're sitting there witnessing their process. The last gentleman that was on was Doug Campbelljohn. And we had the same conversation, except that we learned the lessons from our daughters, each of us, who said, you know, I don't need you to fix my problem. And so we had a good laugh about that. I just want you to listen. Like, I don't need a solution. But I think the type A MBA types like myself and maybe like you too, like we're, you know, we've always been praised for our ability to come up with great solutions to big problems. And as you rise to the executive ranks and you're shepherding a company, that's no longer your job. It's sometimes hard to give up for people. I don't know if it's been hard to give up for you. Oh, it's been incredibly hard because it's a common thing that just keeps coming back. And I had to go, wait a minute, you don't need to solve the problem right now. It actually takes away their agency if you just come in and commandeer the problem and the solution at the same time. Instead, just, again, deep listening and letting them come up with it in their own way. And sometimes asking a couple of good questions, for example, along the way that might be facilitation and you know, narrowing down the problem type of questions or reminding them about all the amazing things that are happening as well. I think yeah. when you fall upon tough times, everything can seem like doom and gloom. The reality is there's a lot of silver linings as well. Sounds like you're a pretty good coach to the people that you're leading. I sure hope so. I think I'll continue working on it for the rest of my life. Yeah, you and me both. So what is your current learning edge? What are you working on now in terms of how to improve your leadership? And, you know, a lot of what I've been working on recently is learning how to share leadership with my executive team and then have them cascade that to the rest of our team. And so I'm a big fan of this phrase. I think it's from the book Trillion Dollar Coach, you know, work the team, then the problem. And it's a book that I really enjoyed reading and coming back to because almost every problem and opportunity in business is a people problem or a people opportunity. 
And so it sounds like you read a lot of books or you listen to books and you listen to other kind of thought leaders. How else do you work on growing and developing your capabilities? A lot of it is through both having my own mentors and coaches. So I would say there's two cohorts, people who are about 10 years ahead of me in terms of their own professional or career experience. And then I look at people who are, you know, they've got a lot more years basically under their belt. So one of my mentors is now retired. And the conversations I have with somebody when they're into their late 60s or early 70s, or even early 80s for that matter, are a completely different level. And then the interesting thing I find about that with those mentors is there's no angstiness about solving the problem. Like I almost find with myself and peers in my same sort of cohort of professional experience, there's almost like this drive for pushing you know, a rock up a hill sometimes. And when I talk to people who have 20, 30, 40 years more experience, they're kind of chill, frankly. They know what matters and what doesn't matter. And the other place I do it is through just asking for feedback. And so, you know, whenever we're doing a a one-on-one with a client or with a team member, I always end conversations with, what did you want to share with me that we didn't get a chance to talk about? And how am I showing up for you? Yeah. And for anyone who's listening, if you haven't lately asked for feedback, you should do that. And I'll give you a tip in the end of the show about how to specifically ask for feedback in a way that will really work. I'm especially struck, Deb, at how many times you've talked about the importance of learning throughout our conversation today. I can see that it's clearly a core tenet for you in your life. And it is, in fact, I think part of what makes for the best executives. To me, the best executives are always looking for what's the next little thing I can do to make a quantum leap or just to make a small improvement. No one likes a know-it-all. And if you are feeling like you're a know-it-all, it kind of means like you stop growing and there's always a next level basically to reach. And you can think of people who are doing that instead of having, you know, the emotion of envy. I mean, I just get damn curious to go, what do they know that I don't? And so, you know, that I, I might be able to learn from. Yeah, that is always a great question. So just as we're kind of moving toward wrapping up, the title of the podcast, you know, is To Lead is Human. And I would love to hear what does this mean to you? What does that evoke for you? You know, in Sapiens, the book by uh, Yuval Hariri, one of the things that he points out is one of the reasons why humans as a race have been able to accomplish so much um, is because we've learned how to cooperate basically with each other. And you certainly see this in you know many other types of species in the animal kingdom, but you see it really truly in humans. And this idea that we are here for each other so that we can get to a shared goal together, it requires leading two things. Leading doesn't always mean being in this executive role in the seat to tell people how to do things or whatnot. But if you think about the last time you learned a new skill, you know, I was learning how to climb, basically. It's a climb rope. I didn't know how to belay. And so I was being led through that learning of the skill as a beginner by my instructor in that particular circumstance. And it just dawned on me, like, if there weren't people you could just work with to learn something, we would not learn anything at all. We just fumble through life and figure it out in the most painful way basically possible. So I think part of the human condition is to take what you are good at and pass it on and help somebody else basically with it. And so I think to lead, to show, to guide is inherently human. That's awesome. I'm wondering, maybe you can remember if in Sapiens is where the description is, we're small, we have no scales, our skin isn't tough, We don't have claws. Our teeth aren't especially sharp. The only way we can really survive is to band together. 
And that, to me, is part of why I guess I feel like leadership, because it does come with some granted authority, has such a sense of responsibility. And so maybe how do you think about your responsibilities as the leader of the company? It kind of reminds me of this story, and it's actually a cultural thing in Africa. Uh, A couple of tribes have this thing where if they're passing between villages, they stop and they look at each other in the eye. And I I might be butchering this, but they say something like, Sawaborna, and the other person says, Sukurna, okay? And what it basically means is, I see you, and the other person says, I see you too. And quite literally, by seeing each other, they're willing each other into existence, not as a figment of imagination, but quite literally, the fact that they acknowledged each other is, it's the opposite is to think is to be, you know, it's like, I literally see that you are here as a real person going your path, and I acknowledge you, and it's a two-way street. So I think when you sum that up to leadership, it really is the leader's job to be able to know their place in this group or this tribe of their team, and how each and every person is unique in their own way. So I think a leader's job really is to be able to find those unique players on their team, put them in the right places and seats where you're setting them up to win rather than to fail, and then to work together, basically, constantly, because it's a dynamic environment. And so it is not only to make your people seen, heard, and understood, but also to ask for that feedback so you too can feel seen, heard, and understood in terms of your contributions as well and grow from it. I could not possibly have said it better. So as we're wrapping up, is there a last piece of advice you might offer? Imagine there's a listener out there who they're good, they're doing well, but they really want to excel and they're not quite sure, let's say, how to build a more human-centered workplace, something where the kind of respect, autonomy, mastery, purpose that you're talking about is present. What would you advise them? Leaders tend to build their skills first, and they're often hard skills. So a hard skill that can be quantitatively measured on a spreadsheet somewhere. So if you're a CFO, that might be your ability to manage costs or manage capital. If you are somebody who focuses on the revenue function, it might be your ability to bring revenue in. I think soft skills are just harder to measure at the end of the day, but they're just as important as the hard ones. It's just you can't put them on a spreadsheet or a document somewhere. And so you require more self-awareness to actually get to what those skill sets are, both what you're good at, what you're not so good at as well. So I would say if somebody doesn't know where they need to grow in leadership overall, but they have this desire to be a better, more human-centric type of leader, talk to your humans, ask them for feedback about where, you know, a simple question could be, when was the last time I really showed up for you that you can remember, you know, and people will tell you. When was a time where you were really counting on me to follow through or come through for you where I let you down? And it's those two poles that help you create guardrails between, look, the reality is even with hard skills, you're going to come through for your people at some point in time. It's just whether you did it by default or you did it by design. And you can only do it by design by getting feedback from those same people that that you want to serve and you want to serve better and make it okay for them to share that with you as well. I think the one thing that'll probably end up happening, certainly happened for me, is when I asked for feedback the first time around, all I got was praise. And I said, at a certain point, after a couple of interactions, thank you, but I, you don't need to build me up. I don't need to be fluffed up, basically. Tell me all the things where I let you down, where I made a promise that I didn't keep, 
where I might have been unaware that I didn't serve you, but yet you felt let down by it, right? And so that really helped me understand what the expectations were of me as a leader. And some of those expectations I wasn't even aware of. And so to sum it up, I'd just say, go talk to the same people that you're serving right now and ask them where you showed up and where you didn't. And that's going to help you bridge the gap. It won't happen overnight. It may not happen in a week or a month, but give it enough time and it'd be unreasonable not to improve in that area. That's just great. So a big surprise for me today, because we hadn't met before today, is how similar our attitudes are about leadership and how beautifully you are able to describe some of the practices. So I'm really so grateful and so happy to be able to share your stories and your perspective, Dev. So thank you for being here today and uh, prompting good thinking and and having a really robust and very positive conversation together. I really appreciate it. This was really enjoyable. I learned a lot from you as well, Sharon. And I know that even though it's the first time we're meeting on this particular show, it kind of feels like we're kindred spirits. And you know, it's always a good thing when you feel like you can get along with somebody so well that it feels like you've known them for longer. That's certainly the way that I'm feeling about it as we wrap up this conversation. Ditto. So I just want to ask you the question that you like asking, which is, is there anything you really wanted to say today that you haven't had a chance to share? Hey, I'm really glad that we ended up talking about leadership rather than my regular talk tracks around marketing and you know technology and things like that, that generally speak about hard skills. And now we, we ended up getting a much more kind of human-centric oriented conversation about leadership. So this is a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's great. Well, thanks so much for being here today. What is the best way for our listeners to find you in the world, find out about you and the work you're doing? If you were on a network like LinkedIn, if you look up Dev Basu, B-A-S-U, you'll find me over there. I tend to post a lot of content around a varied set of topics. And if you're interested at all in terms of working together, check out poweredbysearch.com. If you happen to be a a SaaS or a tech company leader and you're looking to make some changes, not only in your marketing, but also to work with good people while doing so. That's awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for making time, taking time out of your busy schedule to join us here. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Please stay with us for a moment, and I'll share some takeaways in that coaching tip I promised you to help you uplevel your own leadership starting today. Hi, this is Sharon. I'm popping in just before the takeaways to remind you that as an executive coach, I'm always looking to support new clients. If you or someone you know might be looking for an executive coach, head over to my website leadinglarge.com, and you can book a complimentary appointment with me. In the first 25 minutes, we'll be able to identify a challenge you're facing and talk about whether I'm the right fit to work with you. I look forward to hearing from you. So the first thing, of course, is that Dev places such tremendous emphasis on learning and on being intentional about how he learns. And not only has he found mentors, interestingly enough, mentors a little bit ahead of him, but also mentors quite ahead of him to help him make sure that he's developing multiple perspectives on what's most important for him to do next. The second thing is Dev's intentionality continues in the importance he places on asking for feedback. And as you know, 
when we talk about feedback, we're usually talking about how to give it. But the most important thing is to frequently ask. And the way Dev asks is a very easy, casual, natural way. Is there anything you wanted to talk about today we didn't get to? How am I doing at X? How am I doing at being your leader? How am I doing at supporting you? How am I doing at giving you developmental feedback? How am I doing at meeting your company's needs to clients? And by doing this, he's always collecting what's the next best thing we can do to delight somebody. And then the last thing I want to point out is we talk a lot about to lead as human. And Dev clarifies that very important human need, the need to be seen, the need to be heard, the need to be understood, and even more important, the need to feel welcomed and included. So what has he done? Taught the organization about deep listening, about building lasting relationships rather than selling a project. And he points out, you know, for those of us who are problem solvers, we're like, oh yeah, problem, solution, problem, solution. But as he reminds us, people don't want to be fixed. They don't want to be treated like a problem. So let's not do that. Instead, here's the tip I promised you. How do you ask for feedback in a way that will help you get something really useful? Be clear about what you want to know about. So for example, do you want to ask for feedback on how well you are guiding someone in their career development? Or do you want to ask for feedback on how well you're supporting them in a difficult project they're undertaking? Knowing what specifically you're interested in makes it easier for the other person to tell you just what you can do and you should give them a little context. Why are you asking for this feedback? When they offer it to you, even if it's awkward and feels bad and you feel defensive, take a breath and stay curious. Ask another question or two. Ask them how did it affect them in that moment? Or what do they wish you had done instead? Most importantly, be sure that when you're finishing the conversation, you have something that you can take and practice. What can you put into action right away? I'm Sharon Richmond, and this has been To Lead as Human. You can find out more about me at leadinglarge.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G, large.com. To Lead as Human is part of the Miracy FM podcast network, which also includes such shows as Soul Savvy Business and Making It, this episode was produced by Cynthia Lamb, Melissa Deal assembled the episode, and Marvin Del Rosario was the audio editor. Danny Eney is our executive producer. Make sure you don't miss our upcoming episodes and follow us on Miracy FM's YouTube channel or on your favorite podcast player. What did you learn today? If you learned something useful, please take a minute to leave us a starred review and tell your colleagues about us. The more leaders we can reach, the better we will all be at leading from our human core. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on To Lead as Human. Miracy. I'm Molly Mahoney. I'm Danny Eaney. I'm Virginia Muskies. I'm Melinda Cohen. I'm Dave Lacani. I'm Michael Port, and you're listening to Making, Making it. it. You would think that 
when you hit the New York Times list or the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, you would feel like you made it. For me, it never has. I think making it can mean whatever you want it to mean for you. Making it is about having time to spend as I want to spend it. Making it really is about being free to live according to your own genuine values and priorities. It's about acceptance. Not only like making money, but make a difference. Make a contribution. contribution. Like feeling like I'm making a difference to someone. And I don't think making it is a one and done. I think it's an ebb and flow spiral type of pattern. Making it to me really means being able to bring your whole self to the table. It's really a choice that you make every day. Because the truth is that you do not really know what you're doing until you get started doing it. I'd say that the first seven, maybe eight years was like pushing a boulder up the hill. If there's anything that I could say to my younger self, I would say, really? Like, for real, for real? Trust. I would tell myself no shortcuts. No shortcuts. The path is always in front of you, even if it's not clear. The key is to keep moving forward. Everything requires work and effort, no matter how much you love it. You've got to find something that you love, something that you enjoy, so that your work is not a labor, it's not a chore. Don't compare yourself to others. But recognize that if you see someone else doing something that is of interest to you, you can do it also. I had this sensation of, I kind of felt like the walls were shaking and I just felt like, that's what I've been doing all this time. That's who I am. In that moment, I knew who they were. I knew the burdens and distractions and I knew full potential. And then I ended up ultimately in the ultimate Frisbee Hall of Fame as a Johnny Appleseed for taking the sport out to the world. And so I just said to myself, you have to give this a try. If you don't give it a try, you'll spend the rest of your life wondering if you could have done it. The water is always changing and your comfort with that doesn't come from knowing that there is no uncertainty coming. It comes from trusting in your competence to handle that. I like to say, don't emulate, elevate. That's how you're going to make it. Making It is a weekly podcast brought to you by our team at Miracy. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most anywhere else podcasts are found.